So last week we talked about righteousness and the vehicle I used for that was the idea of a plastic Jesus. Going back to the old country song, you know, I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I got my plastic Jesus riding on the dashboard of my car. And the idea there is what we do as people is we tend to read scripture and we tend to take those parts of it that are pleasing to us and we then form a theology out of it. And that becomes what we believe in. Sort of the original version of that was the golden calf because you had God speaking directly to the people, Moses is up on the mountain, and 40 days later you had a faction that went off and made themselves a golden calf, and of course you had the Levites that were steadfast and so forth. So the idea of people grabbing parts of scripture that are congenial and making themselves a savior or a theology out of those parts that they like is as old as we are. And it's not going to stop, by the way. I'm not suggesting that we're going to be able to cure that problem because we're not. So what we talked about last time was righteousness. The text there was that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So today we've got Galatians. What we're going to talk about in that same context then is grace and law. Now, for those of you who have been through the Galatians Bible study on Tuesday night, some of this will be reviewed, but for some of you it may be new. The problem that the Jews had after the resurrection is the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. And they didn't quite know how to deal with this, the Jews. Remember the incident with Peter at Cornelius? where Peter's talking to him, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls on all these Romans and nobody knows what to do and they go back and they have a conversation where Peter is accused of eating with Gentiles and all that kind of stuff and Peter says, well, God gave him the Holy Spirit just like he gave us the Holy Spirit, what are we going to do? So Paul of the Apostles has the Gentile franchise. Peter has the Jewish franchise, and you read their letters and they're addressed to different audiences. So Galatians has to do with Paul has gone and planted a church in Asia Minor and gone off and gone on doing apostle stuff somewhere else. And Jews from the home office in Jerusalem have come through and say, yeah, 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 I know what this guy Paul taught you, but understand that there's more to it than just what Paul taught you. And so you got to get circumcised, and you got to follow the law of Moses, and you got to do all this stuff, otherwise you can't be saved. And so Paul is writing a letter to this church that he planted, and he's basically slapping around. He said, how stupid can you be? I told you the truth, and then somebody comes along and gives you a different story, and immediately you swerve off in another direction. And by the way, the Galatian church is very typical of Messianic churches, because what Messianic churches tend to do is when we come out of the Sunday church, most of us started in the Sunday church, and come into this stuff and you find out that there's more to the Bible than just the New Testament. People sort of dive in there and they start want to talk in Hebrew and learn Talits and all that kind of stuff and they want to be officially in Hebrew. That's the way we are. Nothing wrong with that, you understand, but if you look at the Galatian church, what you see is the same phenomenon there. Paul has come through and he's given them the gospel 
and then these guys from the home office back in Jerusalem show up and say, well, yeah, but I mean, there's all this other stuff. And he's going, ooh, cool, all this other stuff, and here we go. Now, Galatians is an intensely political letter. It's political at the time it's written, and it becomes political again at the time of the Reformation. So in Paul's time, it's political because what it's doing is it's going against the empire. The deal in the empire was you had to worship Caesar unless you were a member of a religion of long standing. And if you were a member of a religion of long standing, you were excused from worshiping the Caesar cult. And Judaism was recognized as such a religion. So Jews were exempt from offering to Caesar and doing all that kind of stuff. So when you get these Gentiles that come into believing in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they say, well, shoot, we can't do this Caesar stuff anymore because it conflicts with our understanding of what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have of us. Well, that presents a problem because they're not Jews and they won't be in the Caesar cult anymore. And furthermore, if the Jews are seen as harboring rebels, then the Romans will come through and plow up their synagogue. So there's a real problem here. So when Paul is talking about circumcision and saying, you guys don't have to become circumcised, you don't have to become Jews in order to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's an intensely political thing. Move forward now 1,500 years. At the time of the Reformation, Luther has got a problem with the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church has done just what the rabbis do, just what everybody else does, and they've started and set themselves up with a deal here where, all right, we know you're all sinners. Everybody's a sinner. But tell you what we're going to do. If you'll give us some money, we will sell you a get-out-of-hell-free card, an indulgence. And Luther says, whoa, that's not right. So the vehicle he used to go against this system of indulgences was the book of Galatians. And he reads the book of Galatians and he says, it's all grace. We don't do any of this law. We don't do any of these rules. It's all grace. So again, Galatians becomes an intensely political document. Because remember, in the 1500s, the Catholic Church is an arm of the secular government. So just as we have a problem with the rabbis and the Jews at the time of Paul, we then have a problem with the Catholics and the priests at the time of the Reformation, all of which centers around Galatians. And the question in Galatians is law or grace. And Paul in Galatians talks heavily about grace. Now, pop up a level for a second here. God has given us a book, and that book is about that thick, depending on what size type you got and what size paper. It is not possible for a single letter or a single verse to contain everything you need to know about God. So if what you've done is you have hooked into a verse or a letter and said, this is what I need to know, and everything else goes by the wayside, you are subject to becoming a worshiper of a golden calf or a plastic Jesus. Galatians is a wonderful letter, 
I like Galatians. I am in no way speaking against Galatians. But Galatians is not the whole story. So Luther took the book of Galatians and used it as a battering ram to start the Reformation and get rid of this indulgences stuff. And there was a lot of bloodshed involved in that. There were wars that lasted centuries over that. So this is a big deal. So what do we do? Well, first off, let's talk about the law and what it is and why we have it. And I will read from Galatians, and I'm going to pick it up in 321. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Yeshua Messiah might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law is our guardian until Messiah came in order that we might be justified by faith. Remember we talked about justification by faith earlier on? So the law is until Messiah. What does that mean? Does that mean the law is contrary to the promises of God? Paul himself says, no, the law is not contrary to the promises of God. Let's go back to Sinai, which is where all this starts. Israel is standing at the foot of the mountain. God descends on the top of the mountain in fire and smoke. And God starts to speak the ten words. And Israel says, stop. If we hear any more, we'll die. Moses, you go up the mountain, you talk to him, you find out what he's got to say, you come back down, we'll listen to you, but we can't listen to God directly or we'll die. I mean, that's scripture right out of Genesis 20. What's the new covenant? The new covenant is when God writes the Torah, his word, on your heart. It's in Deuteronomy, it's in Isaiah, it's in Ezekiel, it's in Jeremiah. I mean, it's, it's all over the Tanakh, repeated from Jeremiah in Hebrews. But the idea there is once it is written in your heart, you will know to do what's right according to what God would have you do. So the thing that's going on at Sinai is God has taken his people, Israel, and this is an attempt to write his law on their heart directly. And what the bride said is, stop, because if we hear any more, we're going to die. We can't handle this. That's when we get tablets of stone. Tablets of stone become a metaphor for hearts of stone. The bride refused the seed. So you're going to schlep these rocks around until we get to the new covenant and we can finally write the law where it's supposed to be on your heart instead of on tablets of stone. So what Paul is saying in Galatians is he is referring back to Sinai. And he's saying that the tablets of stone, the law, were plan B. What God has always wanted to do was write his word directly on human hearts of flesh. You wouldn't let him do it. Therefore, we have the law. 
And the deal is, when you read Jeremiah, you read Ezekiel, you read Isaiah, any of those versions of the New Covenant, Deuteronomy is another version of the New Covenant, in every case, what he says is, I am going to circumcise your heart, I'm going to write the law on your heart, I'm going to write the Torah on your heart, and it's always the same thing. So the words that are getting written on your heart are no different than the words that are written in the Torah, they are just in your heart instead of on sheepskin or tablets of stone. The words are the same. The teaching of God is the same. The instructions never change. It is the same thing. It's just moved from where it is temporarily, tablets of stone, to where it should be permanently on a heart of flesh. So what Paul is saying in Galatians is these guys from Israel who are coming through with a three-day pass and a briefcase and are trying to convince you that there's more stuff that you've got to be doing in order to be saved are leading you astray. Now, I'm going to read from Galatians again. Galatians 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Elementary principles of the world. What are we talking about here? Pagan gods. We are not talking about the Torah. We are not talking about the Word of God. We are talking about the elementary principles of the world, and those are not God. Go on down to verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. This is not Judaism. This is paganism. These are former pagans. These are not former Jews. Pagans have holidays. Pagans have sacred days. Pagans have things that you can touch and not touch. They have all that. Every religion does. And so what Paul is saying is, if you trust in circumcision for your righteousness, what you're doing is you are going back to something that cannot save. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with circumcision. That's not the message. The message is, if you trust in that for your salvation, then you have a problem. It's what are you trusting in, not what do you do. So Galatians is not a screed against Judaism. It is not a screed against circumcision. What it is, is a screed against trusting in something besides God. That's all it is. So Luther reads it, and he says, Aha! Now I've got a battering ram that I can go against the church. And I can get rid of this business of indulgences and so forth. So what he does is he grabs that by the stacking swivel and he launches the entire Reformation. And just like the people who stood at the base of Sinai 40 days later were trying to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the vehicle of a golden calf, read the account. What Aaron says with the golden calf is tomorrow we're going to hold a feast to Jehovah. There's no question who God is. The question is, are we going to worship him through the vehicle of a golden calf or not? Luther, 
There's no question about justification by faith. It's true. The question is, are we going to use that as the centerpiece for a new doctrine which is going to launch the Reformation, is going to launch Calvinism, is going to launch Protestant and everything else? That's the question. And as I said earlier, God gave us an entire book, and it's about that thick. And so if you focus your attention on one chunk of that book and have that be the only thing that you are trusting in, you are making yourself a plastic Jesus. Now, lest I be misunderstood, let's talk about grace. So let's go to Genesis 18:19, which was in today's readings. This is God talking to himself, and he says, For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, if you go back to the promises starting in Genesis 12, going to Genesis 15, etc., is there any condition on those promises? No. God made these promises absolute. But here he's saying, if Abraham doesn't teach his children, and if his children don't do righteousness and justice, then the promises to Abraham are not going to be fulfilled. Let me read it to you again. I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. In other words, if Abraham doesn't teach his children righteousness and justice, and his children go off the rails, as they eventually do, that means that the promises made to Abraham are not going to come to pass. Well, that's the Old Testament, right? That's the law. That's all changed now that Yeshua has come. Okay, well, let's, let's take a look at the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Does Lord, Lord sound like the sinner's prayer? Yeah, sure. Lord, Lord, save me. Right? So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, who gave us the Torah, the Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on a rock. Well, that doesn't count because Jesus was preaching Old Testament stuff. He was talking to the Jews. That doesn't count. Oh. Let's try Paul. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? This is Paul, remember, that wrote Galatians? Grace alone? Writing to the Corinthians, he's talking about lawlessness. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So what I will say to you is 
Yeshua preaches law. Abraham preaches law. Moses preaches law. Paul preaches law. Not convinced? Let's look at John. John preaches law too. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So we've got Abraham, we've got Moses, we've got Yeshua, we've got Paul, we've got John. Every one of them says that lawlessness is not to be tolerated, not to be practiced. And as I say, if you just hang out in Galatians, which is a wonderful book, I love Galatians, but if you just hang out there and you build your entire theology on Galatians like Martin Luther did, what you wind up with is plastic Jesus. You wind up with an unbalanced understanding of God because in order to understand God, you need the entire Bible. And you need to be able to harmonize the entire Bible, all the parts. And you need to be able to say to your dear friends who are Calvinists, God bless them. I'm not a Calvinist, but God bless them. Yeah, it is grace. It's the grace of God that saves us. Absolutely true. I completely agree. But once he does save you, he expects you to walk in Torah, to walk orderly. And he says that all over the Bible. You've got to be able to harmonize all this stuff. And as I say, it is entirely human, entirely normal, because God is so much bigger than any one person that we get a hold of the chunk of it, and that's what we focus on, and we all do it. I'm not throwing rocks. But understand that doing that can lead you into a ditch. But just like back at Sinai, you got people that wind up 40 days later dancing around a golden calf. So today, you have people that are walking in sin because they've been convinced that all that stuff has been done away with. And that's not correct. Did I say that so it made sense? <laughs> 